That's a hard song to sing. Not musically, but, you know, that, that's, that's where we want to be in our hearts as far as, like, you know, what it is that we're longing for. That last line, stamp thine own image deep on my heart. Right? And that's, that's what you want. You want to be like Christ, right? From the inside. And then it just flows out of you and how you live. But in our hearts, we ought to want to be like Christ. That's lofty, right? And that, that's not what justifies us, right? Thank, thank the Lord for that because we all fall short of that, you know, in many ways. But that longing, you know, that longing, that's, that's abiding in Christ, is that longing and that praying and that crying out, Lord, Help me to be like you. Make me like you. Make me a temple that is meet for thy dwelling. Jesus said that they would come and make their home within us. They, meaning God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And Lord, make me a temple fit for that. And thank God, what is, what is the truth? What is the answer to that? He does. He does. Not by our works not by morally scrubbing us. He makes us a temple fit for His dwelling simply by His grace. Simply by His own sovereign grace. Simply because He he chooses to. Isn't that incredible? Incredible is not the right word. Isn't that amazing? And And isn't it marvelous? I mean, who am I to pray and say, Lord, make me like you. Well, I'll tell you, it's not me, it's him in me. Right? Hallelujah. But that's but that should be the cry of every Christian's heart, right? First John says that we should walk as he walked. Open to Acts chapter one with me this morning. I've done this in, in past years. I've, I've taken, I really enjoyed Palm Sunday and Easter around here this year. I greatly enjoyed it. Thank you for all of your unique contributions to making it a joyous time for each other. And I, and I hope it was for you that, that we are able to lift up the Lord, whether it was Palm Sunday and the dinner or all of the music, certainly, and you know, just some of the fellowship and the, the preaching and teaching, I hope, had some small part in it too. But but I, I just really enjoyed, you know, that special annual celebration of, of the Lord's resurrection. And I don't know, I have a hard time just setting it aside after it's over, I guess. And so so that's why the sermon title today is Easter, the Epilogue. And I've, I've in past years, you know, taken the week after Easter to uh, take one of the passages that, that describes... Christ on earth, that time on earth after he rose from the dead, leading up to the time that he ascended into heaven. And in particular, the first section of Acts chapter 1, I'm sure I've, I've addressed from this pulpit on the week after Easter in the past. But I want to kind of go through the whole chapter, uh, chapter 1 here today, and, and, and maybe not take so much time in the beginning part of it as I have in the past. It'll be very, especially the first 8 to 11 verses, will be very familiar ground for us all, but it's good to be reminded of it. I mean, if we're going to celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead, 
let's remember some of the stuff Jesus said after he rose from the dead, right? He didn't just rise from the dead so we can have a nice church service and then go home. He rose from the dead and said some stuff, right? And some stuff happened, and we were told some stuff, and we need to be aware of that, right? So it's very important that we uh, follow all of the Lord's words here, and it's a a joy for me to be able to share this with you this morning. Let's bow before the Lord, and let's pray, and then I'll just go ahead and read all of chapter 1, and we'll we'll break it down together. This is the book of Acts, chapter 1. Let's bow in prayer, everybody. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we know, like I just said, Lord God, we know that uh, when you rose from the dead, Lord Jesus, that you gave instructions to those early disciples of yours. And we know that they're written down for our learning and they're instructions for us to remind us what we're called to. And Lord, my prayer is that we would listen today, be reminded of what is probably familiar ground for every Christian who's been, you know, in, in the in the faith for some time. And, and But I need reminding of it. We all need reminding of it, Lord God, to stir it up in us, to remain steadfast and faithful, to remember why we're here. And we thank you, Lord God, for the reminder that is your word. And I pray, Lord God, that we'd all listen attentively, not because it's me, but because it's you. And listen attentively and carefully and, and just listen to your word and desire to have the strength from you to be doers of it and not hearers only. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostle whom he had chosen, to whom he presented himself alive after his suffering, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath, a Sabbath day's journey. 
And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who uh, was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right. Well, the introduction in verses 1 through 3, if you notice, is one big long sentence. And kind of the summation of all of that is for, I believe this to be Luke. And there's very little dispute about that. To be the author of the book of Acts, for it opens with a salutation addressing the same person, someone named Theophilus, which might actually be literally a person named Theophilus, or it might be just a a generic salutation for even a little knowledge of Greek. You can recognize Theo, meaning God, and and the last part of it being a, uh, a form of the word phileo, which has to do with love. So the idea of Theophilus is God lover. Right, So it, perhaps there is an individual named Theophilus that, that uh, Luke is writing this to, which would actually make it a giant epistle and not just a narrative. Or perhaps he has in mind, he's just addressing in general lovers of God, which I hope you and I and all of us in the room fall in the category of. And he says, that former account I made, the former account being the Gospel of Luke, uh, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and teach until the day he was taken up, after through, now he introduces the, uh, the new writing here, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he presented himself alive 
after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking to them the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In other words, what Luke is saying is, I need to pick up where I left off with the gospel account that I wrote because there's a whole lot more that needs to be recorded and a whole lot more needs to be said. First of all, after Jesus rose from the dead, and here's the really relevant part for us today, a lot of stuff happened before he actually ascended back to heaven. And then after he ascended back to heaven, a whole lot more stuff continued to happen that actually continues to happen today, right? So in a sense, you can divide the Gospel of Acts into two sections, chapter 1 and then chapters 2 through 28, which doesn't seem like an even distribution, but, but chapter 1 describes what happens before the Holy Spirit comes, which was the promise of the Father that Jesus was speaking about. And then the rest of the book describes what happened after the Holy Spirit came, after that promise was fulfilled. And guess what? There's nothing inventive here in what I'm about to say. Many have said it before, but Acts has 28 chapters, and a lot of people, Christians, have cleverly and appropriately tried to point out that you and I are basically living Acts chapter 29 over the last 2,000 years. Because if the book of Acts simply ends with the gospel ministry going on and going on and going on. We here and how we function as a church are an extension of where this record of church life leaves off. right? And so you and I are continuing in the living, the working out of our own salvation with fear and trembling, as Peter put it, We're continuing to live out what was promised here in chapter 1, as well as in Christ's life and as well as in the words of the prophets, and uh, then what ultimately began to be fulfilled when the Holy Spirit came in the beginning of chapter 2 at that Pentecost that year. Right? So that's Luke's introduction to the whole thing. And then there's basically four important sections of chapter 1, and we'll go over each one of them. Verses 4 through 8 describes this, uh, this, this issue of this question that they ask concerning the kingdom of God. So we'll go over that in a minute. And then verses 9 through 11 describe Jesus' ascent back to heaven along with the promise that was made that he would one day return. Right? And then I mentioned this when I was making the announcements before. In verses 12 through 14, one of the little kind of maybe skimmed over sections of this chapter, but it shows the devotion to prayer that was fundamental to the life of the church. In in some sense, you can almost theologically say before they were officially the church. Because a lot of people like to point out that the sort of the church's birthday is Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to dwell in them. a bit subjective maybe to say it that way, but before the Holy Spirit came, these people, what were they doing? They had been given a command by Jesus. They were obeying that command and doing what? Just waiting and doing what? Praying. Praying. And they were together in prayer. And this is what they were committed to. They knew something big was coming. They had no idea what it was going to be yet, but they were in prayer. Can you look at that and find anything relevant for your own life? I mean, yeah. And then the last part of it, is maybe the the longest part of it from verse uh, 15 to the end of the chapter. It describes the occasion uh, of Judas Iscariot being replaced by Matthias. And there's a a thing in the middle of that which 
also often is overlooked, and I've probably pointed it out from the pulpit in the past. I know in smaller settings I certainly have. But one of the, you may not realize this, but one of the greatest affirmations of Scripture being, though written by men, actually the Word of God, is made right in this little section where they, uh, where they undertake to replace Judas Iscariot. Um, and we'll get to that. I'll cover, I'll just leave that there for now. When we get to that section, we'll cover it, okay? So let's take a look at verse 4 and go through this first section, verses 4 through 8. Follow along with me and just kind of hang with me here. Um, it said they were assembled together. This is after Christ's resurrection, right? After what we called Easter last week. Do you remember... Last week, when I was reading from the Gospel of John, the account of Christ after he had risen from the dead, one of the things that that passage recorded was that Jesus breathed on them. And what did he say when he breathed on them? Receive the Holy Spirit, right? And so I believe that to have been part of this whole, maybe not at this exact moment, but part of the whole experience of Jesus sort of priming them Jesus sort of prepping them. Jesus sort of preparing them and getting them ready for what was going to come. And here, in in John's account, we were not given much elaboration on that. Jesus just breathed on them, said, receive the Holy Spirit, right? But here, you actually get Christ saying something to them concerning the coming Holy Spirit, Uh, which is quite substantial because it's a response to a question that they ask. So they're all together, and he makes a command. And his command was, don't leave Jerusalem. What I've I've called you to do, it's all going to start right here. And so you need to stay right here. And there's 120 of them, and they stayed right there. All right? So wait here in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, And this goes back to quote something that John the Baptist himself spoke of and Jesus himself spoke of in the gospel accounts. The promise that you, John, baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Right? So this harkens back to the baptism of John, John the Baptist. What was that baptism? John the Baptist was the forerunner. John came to prepare the people for the Messiah who was going to be publicly announced. And John was in the wilderness and he would baptize people. And we were told people would come out to him in the account that we have. He's in the Jordan River, actually. And people even would come out from Jerusalem. Even the scribes and Pharisees came out at one point. And they came out to him in the river. And the Bible says the people would come to him and they'd be confessing their sins. And John the Baptist would be warning them, listen, don't don't take this light. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And the people would come and they'd confess their sins and he would baptize them in the river. And all of this was a picture of a greater cleansing and baptism which was going to come, which would be brought on by the Messiah himself. And of course, now Jesus is hearkening back to those words and that ministry of John the Baptist and saying to his disciples here, all right, now it's going to come, right? And this is Jesus after three years of these folks following him around, after being crucified and rising from the dead, right? 
So there's a great authority to Christ's words here, saying to them, you remember what John the Baptist and what his baptism was all about. It was to prep you for this, which is coming. Right? So don't leave Jerusalem. Stay here. Not many days from now, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Do they, could they even fathom what it was that was going to occur? Probably not. But we can read into chapter 2, and you can read it and do it for yourself for another time to see what happened. Or, better yet, you can spend your days and your hours and your time praying and praying to the Lord and asking Him to use you. Praying like that last hymn that we sung, Oh, to be like thee, stamp thine own image deep in my heart. And let God, the Holy Spirit who lives in you, use you the way that he used these people to go out and to preach the gospel to people, right? Because that's really what this is all about. So, not many days from now, he says, you're going to receive that promise. Here it comes. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him this question. So notice that this starts with a promise. The promise is you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Not a new promise. The reiteration of a promise. Then after they're gathered together, they ask a question that to us looking back and reading seems like it's a little off the subject of what Jesus was talking about. But to them, and from their perspective, and without the benefit of history to look back on, they're living in that historic context that we talked about on Palm Sunday, we talked about it on Easter Sunday, and you can continue to talk about it now. It's what prompts this question, right? I mean, before Palm Sunday, and I just oblige me to really briefly go over the history again, because this is what sets the whole things up. Every Jewish man, even these guys from up in Galilee, every Jewish man knew that their people, their nation, had suffered harshly under the authoritarian rule of dictatorship and empire after dictatorship and empire going all the way back over almost over six centuries, actually, going back six centuries all the way to the time of the Babylonians, an empire that didn't even exist anymore in their time, right? Going all the way back to the time of the Babylonians, the Jewish people had their nation destroyed, had their, and that was all God's judgment upon them and God's discipline of them, but he spared a remnant, and these were the descendants of the remnant that had been spared, Right, because God's purpose was still to use them. But they, the Babylonians came and destroyed, and then the Persians rose up, the, Med, the Medo-Persian Empire, there it is. The, the Persians and the Medes, Darius the Mede being the most famous of the Medes. And, and of course, uh, you know the story of the Persians, you know the whole uh, Xerxes uh, dynasty, and you know the story of Hadassah, Esther, that, that occurs during all of that. And Anyway, you have uh, the Persians rose up and conquered the Babylonians. The Jewish nation is still like under that empire. Uh, They were much more generous and much more kind. And they allowed the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. They rebuilt that second temple that became the temple that Herod expanded and was the temple that was in place in Jesus' day, right? And then... Uh, But then they were conquered when Alexander the Great swept across the globe. Alexander the Great, only 32 years old with no heir, dies. His generals split his empire into four. You have that entire empire with the Antiochus dynasty ruling in Jerusalem. Harsh, wicked, idolatrous people. And the Jews continued to suffer under that, right? Until the Romans rise up and the Romans conquer all of 
everything that came before them. And the Roman Empire is in power when Jesus is born into the world. Certainly when these people, when these 120 people, they know all of this history and they know God's promises were to raise up the descendant of David who was going to be the Messiah and was going to reestablish David's throne and reestablish. These guys are excited. I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. Certainly. Certainly, Jesus rising from the dead, he's the one. Who else, could it, who else could it be? We've seen all his miracles. We heard all of his preaching and teaching. And this is the one who's going to undo 600 years of oppression and, 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 and slavery and persecution and death. Right? Jesus is the one. And then, you know, so they ask the question, okay, Lord, you didn't do it before, but we understand. Right? You crucified. You rose from the dead. Uh, are you going to do it now? Right? You know, because, because it's like, you know, they were all shouting Hosanna, Hosanna when he rode in on the donkey. You know, on Palm Sunday. And as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, you know, they expected then that he was going to go confront the Romans. But what did he do? After they all shouted Hosanna, 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 he didn't go over to the... Uh, to the praetorium, and, and, or he didn't go into Pilate's place and, and confront them. He walked into the temple and flipped tables over and told the Jews, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And so they're like, Hosanna? Hosanna? And then you can understand why as the days go by, it became crucified. Crucified. Oh, we were wrong about him. right? But of course, they weren't wrong about him. When he died on the cross, he did, Hosanna, right? See how that all fits together? So now he's risen from the dead. And so now certainly, certainly we're going to see it. Here is our king. Nobody can argue with that now. He rose from the dead. And then what does he do? He leaves. <laughs> He leaves. It's just like, you got to know that it's just like Jesus now. It's by this point, it's just like Jesus. Jesus is going to do what he's going to do and he's going to unfold his plan and unfold his will uh, in the way that his father has taught him and instructed him to do so, presumably, right? And so, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Verse 7, what's his answer? Does he say yes or no? He really... Well, the answer is no, you're correct, but really he kind of doesn't say yes or no, does he? He just tells them, forget about it, right? It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. He even removes himself, and he's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's going to be the king who sits on David's throne. He's the one who's going to do it. But he even extracts himself out of the discussion and says to them, it's not even for you to know. That's the Father's business, not yours. Let me tell you what your business is going to be. Right? So they ask that question. He says, look, the Father, it's not for you to know these times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but, you know that verse 8 starts with but, because this promise of the Holy Spirit is in contrast with what they were looking for. They were looking for the kingdom to be established there and then, but, what they were about to get was something else. And what they were going to get was part of the kingdom being established. We certainly understand that now, right? 
because a big part of the establishment of the kingdom of God has been these last 2,000 years when God has been sovereignly recruiting His chosen remnant, sovereignly recruiting through the preaching of the gospel His elect to be added as subjects in that kingdom, which is still going to come. And you're part of that. You're part of that because you have been called by God and brought near by His own power and grace through the preaching of the gospel. And now He wants to turn around and use you to send you out and go after some more. Marvelous, marvelous plan. Even some of the most faithful people, the closest people to Him, didn't quite understand it while God is just... He is just unfolding a little bit at a time this amazing plan that He has to establish a kingdom that is way beyond what anybody could comprehend in that day and probably way beyond what we can even comprehend reading the Bible through over and over and over again. I mean, who could have foreseen at that moment that the kingdom wasn't just going to be Israel? The kingdom's going to... Look look around the room. You know, we have, we, we're blessed to have a Jewish person or two among us here today. Praise the Lord. God bless you. But listen, the kingdom of God includes Jew and Gentile alike, all who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jews who trust in Jesus as Messiah. Gentiles who trust in Jesus as Messiah. They could not have understood that at that moment. What if the last 2,000 years never happens within the economy of God building His kingdom? Where are we, fellow Gentile? I mean, we're kind of really stuck on the outside, right? But what a marvel. No, I'm not going to establish the kingdom the way that you think I'm going to, but I am going to build my kingdom and I'm going to use you to do it. That's really what he says when he says, but you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, which is the promise that he just referred to. Don't leave. Stay here. Wait for the promise of the Father. Lord, you're going to establish the kingdom now? Not even your business. But you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And you're going to be what? Witnesses. I didn't just do this for you. I did this for you. But I did this not so it could just exist in isolation in some small little corner of the world. I did this so that you can be the beginning, the first building blocks. Right? I mean, the Bible says that about the church, that Christ is the cornerstone and the the foundation blocks are the apostles, right? And so he says, you know, I did this so that you can go and tell people what you've seen, what you've heard, what you've experienced, which is what a witness is, right? Right? What did you see? What did you hear? What do you know? Shed some light on this. That's what you're going to do. But you're not going to do it on your own. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're not just going to be witnesses who are going to walk around by your cleverness, you're not just going to be witnesses who are going to walk around and try to, to, to think of some persuasive way to try to... No, you're going to go and you're going to tell people the simple, basic message and it's not going to be about your skill in sharing with it. It's not going to be about your smoothness of speech. It's not going to be about your ability to market. It's not going to be about your gimmicks or your cleverness. It's going to be about the power of God which comes upon you. 
As the Apostle Paul says, what? The Jews seek after a sign. The Gentiles, the Greeks, they seek after wisdom. But what do we bring? Christ and Him crucified. The power of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses. Where? Everywhere. You're going to start right here in Jerusalem. It's going to expand to Judea and even into, yes, even into Samaria. All this gets fulfilled on the pages of the book of Acts, by the way. You get to chapter 8 and there's uh, Philip, the evangelist, preaching in, in Samaria. Right? And, uh, and even to the ends of the earth. And guess what? Guess what? Woodbridge, New Jersey. Guess what? Fellowship Bible Church in Woodbridge, New Jersey. You can, you, can, you can accept this and get excited about it, or you can just kind of sit back and bottle it up in your head and let, and let, 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 let yourself be deluded into thinking that this is about somebody else, but it's not. It's about you. When it talks about going to the end of the earth, you're that. You're in this verse. If you're in Christ, you're in this verse. When he says to the end of the earth, he's talking about you and me. Who even knew that this place existed or would exist other than God Himself when this was said by Christ a couple thousand years ago? But here we are, and what are we called to do? Be His witnesses, not by our cleverness, but by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. That's why you need to be filled with the Spirit. That's why you need to not quench the Spirit and not grieve the Spirit. It's why you need to walk in the Spirit and live in the Spirit and, and, and be filled with the Holy Spirit and guided and controlled by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit gives power to be Christ's witnesses. And that's what we need to be doing. We need Listen, I haven't seen Him. I'm like you, one of those people when Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. I'm one of them. And we are all one of them, right? Well, listen, with that blessing also comes the calling to be His witnesses. Not to tell people necessarily what I've seen in that I've seen Christ personally. Obviously, I have not. But to tell people what I know, I can't say I stood there and watched him be crucified and then I talked with him and, and even touched the wounds in his side when he rose from the dead. But I can say, like the guy in John chapter 9 who was blind and had his sight healed, what? I was blind, but now I see. Right? A man named Jesus the account of who he is and what he did was preached to me. And in a way that I can't explain to you scientifically, I'm sorry, my heart was stirred. My mind was lit on fire. And I was turned by God to trust and to love this one called Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And I've come to know that He existed and He is real and He died on a cross and He took the penalty for my sin and He rose from the dead and He actually is the Son of God. And He's actually even going to come again one day. And through faith in Him, my life has been radically altered. The path that I was going down was completely changed. I stand in front of other believers in Jesus every week and I preach to them about Jesus. I promise you before I knew Him, I never envisioned that coming. Because he moved, and you have a story like that too. It's not exactly the same as mine. But if you're in Christ, 
I don't care if you got saved when you were three years old, four years old, five years old. God has moved in your heart. Sometimes I talk to people who got saved when they were very, 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 very young. And, and, and like sometimes they regret not having the story of this dramatic change. Go, oh, don't you regret that? You missed out on a lot of the stuff that I wished I had missed out on because I got saved after my teenage years. You know what I mean? Right? And, and, and I see in some of those people when I fellowship with them stories of how God uses them. If you're in Christ, you know that God uses you and you need to be thankful that your name is written down in heaven. So His power in the Holy Spirit upon me, I haven't seen Him, but I'm still His witness because I know what He's done. I know what He's done in me and I know what He's done in you. And I know what He's done in our church and I know what He's done in the world. And I could tell people, you know, criticize it all you want. But I was blind, and now I see. Right? Will the world love you for that? You know, in John chapter 9, when that formerly blind fellow said, What? You want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? What did they say to him? We have Moses. You were born completely in sins. And they excommunicated him from the synagogue for the sin of believing that Jesus, the Messiah, healed him of his blindness. Don't expect the applause of the world. But you go to the world in the power of the Holy Spirit and you be a witness We talk a lot. We talk about all the wrong things. We talk among ourselves. We talk, we talk, we talk. I'm going to start a study of the book of James very soon here. It talks about the tongue, how it's like a little spark that starts a whole forest on fire. You know, we use our mouths. You know, out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. We'll go over some of that. You know what we should be using our mouths for? You want, you want to spread some news? Spread this. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in humility and love. Be filled with the Spirit and go and spread that Jesus is the Son of God and died for my sins and rose from the dead and offers now eternal salvation. The only path to eternal life and eternal salvation is through Him. Go and spread that word in the power of the Spirit with reckless abandon. Bring it up all the time. Well, that's the first section. Now in the second section of this, in verse 9, here comes his ascent into heaven. But when he had spoken these things, understand something. Understand the context. They had just asked him what? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? And in and, and verse 9, there's no passage of days. Verse 9 happens. It says, now when he had spoken these things. So it's right, it's right then in that moment. Right? Right in that moment. As he speaks those things, what? While they were standing there looking and listening to him, here's something I guarantee you they didn't wake up expecting to see. 
He was taken up. What does that mean? It means he was taken up. Yeah. Into a cloud. Where are clouds? Up. Yeah. Literally taken up while they watched. And it received them out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly up toward heaven as he went up. So they're standing here like this. Which you would be and I would be too, right? And I know I've said what I'm about to say before. But maybe some of you haven't heard it. But I, you know, I can't resist saying things over and over again. You know that. So you have to deal with it. But it says that, like, this, is, this is, amazes me. These two men stood by them in white apparel, apparently identifying them as angels, kind of like the ones that were there when the stone was rolled away and Mary Magdalene looks inside the tomb, right? Maybe the same ones, I don't know. But they stood by, and then they, not Jesus, but they... These men who stood there addressed this crowd that's standing there watching Jesus ascend into heaven and disappearing out of the side. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Which I've always found to be a very funny question, right? Because what's the obvious answer? Because there's a man flying up there. Which is, which is, some of you have heard me say that ten times and you still laugh. That's awesome. You're very gracious and patient. But it's true. Come on, if there was a dude flying in the sky, you'd be standing there and look. And they're like, like, you know, why are you standing here? Well, of course, what they're getting at is that it's time to move. It's time, it's time, it's time to put this... Thing. Listen, Jesus didn't just say some words. Jesus gave you marching orders. Jesus, when Jesus said something's going to happen, something's going to happen. You understand that, right? Why do you stand here looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come, look at these words, in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So in other words, just like they stood and watched, so will the world stand and watch as he returns. Bible provides a couple glimpses of that. We're familiar with the book of Revelation. Jesus on the horse, King of kings, Lord of lords. Maybe you're less familiar with Zechariah 14. We'll be covering that in our minor prophets study pretty soon. Turn there. Zechariah 14. Go there. Because there's an aspect to this that I want for every Christian to see. And to know, Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14.1. Zechariah is one of the post-exilic prophets. Zechariah, you know, most of the minor prophets we've gone through, they've been prophesying about this judgment that was going to come. Either the judgment on the northern tribes of Israel because the Assyrians were coming, or the judgment upon Judah, because the Babylonians are coming. Zechariah is a prophet who prophesies after the Persians had conquered the, uh, the Babylonians and allowed them to go back to rebuild. And they got a little lazy and discouraged in their rebuilding. 
So God raised up men like Zechariah to talk to them, to encourage them, you keep doing it. And you just keep going away. Because you keep building. You keep doing what God has opened up the door for you to do. Because here's what's going to happen one day. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. That doesn't sound very encouraging so far, but listen to where it goes. The city shall be taken, the house is rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then, look at this, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Where did Jesus... When Jesus went up into the sky, where did he leave from? He left from the Mount of Olives. Just have that, have that bottled up in your head. This whole thing we're reading in Acts chapter 1 so far, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and that's when Jesus was taken up in a cloud out of their sight. And then they were told, in like manner, he's going to come back. Not only in like manner are they going to look and see him come back, he's actually coming back to the same spot that he left from. Isn't that... Isn't that like the Lord? He's coming back to the same spot, except this time it's going to be quite different. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives, what? Shall split in two. How about that? Wrap your mind around that. Jesus is going to come back and when his feet touch down, what's that going to sound like? What's that going to look like? What's the effect of that going to be? Well, that's coming. Split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move to the north and half of it will move to the south. Literally, you bet. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in whose days uh, Isaiah prophesied. Thus, now ready? Ready? Thus the Lord my God will come. And all the saints with you. Wait a minute. What are saints? Yeah. Saints saints in New Testament literature is a word that gets used quite a bit. The saints are people among the Jews and the Gentiles who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore have been set apart by God. Saint means a sanctified, set-apart person. The Lord Jesus left by Himself, but the Lord Jesus is coming back with all of His saints. As the song goes, I want to be in that number when they go marching in. Yeah? And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. (laughs) The lights will diminish. Look at this. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day, it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. 
half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And look at this. Here, here's what they were looking for when they asked the question, are you going to establish the kingdom now? And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. I know the ladies got together yesterday and and my wife shared a message with them about the prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things that, that Jesus taught us to pray was what? Your kingdom come. When the Apostle John got the vision, when the Apostle John got the vision of the revelation, he was so moved by the horrors of what was coming on the world, that he was so weak he could barely even stand up. And yet at the end, what does he say? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even though it meant for the world what he saw, which was terrible, even so, come. Your kingdom, come. Hallelujah. And the Lord shall be king over what? Israel? Yes, but all the earth. Hallelujah. And in that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name is one. All right, go back to the book of Acts. My inkling is that those guys who asked the question and then that, that group of men and women who were gathered on the Mount of Olives to see him sail into the sky who were spoken to by those two angels. My inkling is that they understood the words of Zechariah. The book of Revelation, of course, wasn't written yet. But they understood the prophecy of Many of the things in the Old Testament, maybe especially that one, because they were standing on the Mount of Olives, right? Which is where the prophecy takes place. So, he says, just, what's the implied admonishment of why are you standing here looking up into heaven? The same Jesus, just as he left in like manner, he's going to come back. What's the implied admonishment there? Get back to Jerusalem, like he said. Wait there, just like he said. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to receive power and you're going to be his witnesses, just like he said. That is still in play, for lack of a better way of saying it, right now. You and I are called to be his witnesses. That's what the church's primary function is. Well, I sh- the church's primary function is to make disciples. And, and, and the, the primary part of making disciples is to preach the gospel to every creature. Right? That's where disciples start out. They start out as people who hear the gospel and believe. And then we set about doing this, preaching and teaching God's word. The whole point of me standing here and every week making these verse-by-verse teachings from the Bible is to try to have all of us... I mean, you can read the Bible for yourself. It's a great blessing, and you should. 
But the whole purpose of all this is to try to get us all stirred up and grown up as his disciples. The more of God's word we understand, the more of God's word and the power of his Holy Spirit, we commit to being doers of, we're growing as disciples and Lord willing, becoming more fruitful. The problem in the modern world, the problem in the modern church is we, we take this as like the expression of our Christianity. And this is just supposed to be the training and the education and the fueling up for our actual living of Christianity, which happens out there. Well, I have news for you. Just as he left, so he shall return. And we're 2,000 years closer to it happening. Think about that. 2,000 years has passed since this promise was made. So verse 12, here comes the third section of this. Verse 12 is the part I was mentioning before when I was making announcements. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet. That's the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room, which, of course, sets the stage for what happens in chapter 2, where they were staying. All of the apostles then are named except for Judas Iscariot, right? The important part of this is what it says in verse 14. Well, it's all important. The thing I want to draw your attention to is, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So you've got all of these disciples, including the 12 apostles. There's 120 of them, verse 15 tells us. Right? And included in there is Jesus' mother Mary. Remember what happened at that wonderful moment on the cross when, when Jesus, while being crucified, and John the Apostle standing there with Mary, his mother, he says, he says woman, behold your son. And he says to John, uh, behold your mother. And from that hour, the Apostle John took Mary to his house to care for her. That... That, that, might, that might have been an interesting discussion after Jesus rose from the dead, right? Just, just to like verify that, you know? <laughs> it's pretty awesome. So she's part of this, which is beautiful. Just absolutely beautiful, isn't it? Don't miss those little details because you just read over them because we're interested in the doctrine and the theology and all this. But look, Mary's there. Jesus' mother is not forgotten, The Apostle John was told, take care of her. So when they're having a prayer meeting, guess what? John's there and Mary's with him. Imagine Mary being part of that crowd and seeing her son alive after watching him be crucified. Her son is alive. Every mother of a Christian child who is also a Christian will one day have the same experience. For those who are in Christ, we will all see our loved ones who are in Christ alive one day. Imagine that. Doesn't this make you want to be his witness? Doesn't this make you want to go and tell other people 
doesn't this make you want to set aside the petty and the small and the stuff that doesn't matter and just embed yourself in the life of God and Christ Jesus and go out and just tell the news to everybody? How unsearchable are the promises of God which he's made to us? This is a silly little detail. You know, these all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. That would have been enough. No. And Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers, the fam is there. And you know, it's not just the, it's not just mom. It's the brothers. He had a brother named James. And he had a brother named Jude. And they wrote books that are in the New Testament. James and Jude. Great. But what did they do? Here's, I'm, 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 I'm off what I mainly wanted to get at. I actually didn't plan to say all that. The Lord just kind of touched my heart with that here in this moment. But really what I wanted to say was what they were doing. They were told by Christ, wait, don't leave. Wait. The promise is coming not many days from now. Don't leave Jerusalem. You don't want to be, you don't want to be on the outside of this. Stay right there. The Holy Spirit's going to come and you're going to be my witnesses starting right there in Jerusalem and spreading out ultimately to the whole world. So they go back. And what do they do? Do they, do they, do they part and go their separate ways? Do they go back and just reinsert themselves into their former lives now that Jesus is gone. They've spent the last three years following him all over the place, seeing him crucified, seeing him risen from the dead, seeing him ascend into the sky. And they're told to wait. What do they do while they wait? Do they just go back and reinsert themselves into just the mundane, normal, everyday life? Well, I'm sure they had responsibilities, yes. I mean, they had to eat, right? They had to have shelter, they had various needs that I'm sure popped up. They need to help each other and bless each other. That's all part of life. Man, nothing got in the way of one thing. It doesn't just say that they prayed. It says these all, note the word all. 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 Who, who does the word all exclude? Who does it exclude? Hmm. This church gathered together to pray and it was all of them. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. One accord speaks of their one-mindedness. We saw this in Philippians, right? Their single-mindedness and their, they, that they were all in agreement and of the same spirit and of the same heart. They were all in agreement to be obedient to Jesus and to wait and that they were going to fulfill what it was that he spoke. They were just, they did, it was all on the same page. That happens when all gather to pray. Prayer, supplication, included women and Mary and the mother of Jesus. May I say to you, like I said before, The devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom you may devour. He is a liar and the father of it. He's an angel of light 
which means he appears good. Right? An angel of light. That means he appears smart and good. Light depicts knowledge and goodness in biblical literature. He's an angel of light. And one of the ways that Satan has blinded Christians and pulled the wool over our eyes is to make us look at passages like this and think to ourselves, that was them, not us. Really? Am I wasting my time here this morning? Are you wasting your time here this morning? We're called to gather to pray. Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem and wait there. Jesus didn't say, I don't think, anyway. He didn't say, go back to Jerusalem and go into the upper room and pray. He just said, go wait for the promise of the Father. And it was just instinctive in their hearts. We're going to go and we're going to be together and we're going to pray. We, we can learn from this. I don't promote legalism, but it ought not to be so incredibly hard to recruit Christians to pray, to say to men, once a month we're going to get together and pray, to say to the ladies, once a month we're going to get together and pray. That shouldn't be that I should have people banging on my door and saying, Lou, why do we only do this once a month? I actually used to have some people who used to say that. I really don't anymore. When your church assembles to pray, what, what really do you have going on that's so important that you, that you can never I, I don't. I, you know, I, I'm not. We're not promoting legalism. I understand you, we're not called to just go to church every time the doors are open. I'm not promoting that. I don't want to burden. I don't want to lay a burden like that on anybody. I mean, I can't even always be here. You know. But it's not. It's not the point. But listen, never, really, never. You can never enter into a time where the people are just praying for thirty minutes. I don't speak in any judgment because I happen to think that we're all victims of Satan who who has riled up and fired up and like crazy tries to pull the wool over our eyes. But I am telling you, do not miss. They gathered to pray and they were all in one accord. Do not miss that they spent their time in prayer and that they were all in agreement with one another. Isn't it interesting that, like, that's what they did. That's what they spent their time doing while they waited for the church to be born. Wow. Last section, verse 19. And in those days, Peter stood up. So those... You get a little insight in here. They're able to do this because they're gathered together in prayer. And God is going to move among them to do something amazing. He's going to fulfill something that was written in the Old Testament. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, told there's 120 of them. And he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which, look, the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, 
Here's the gem that I hope in just a couple of minutes I could explain to you in the midst of all of this. Peter says, the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. What is it he's referring to? He's referring to what it says in verse 20, where there are two quotations from the Psalms. One is from Psalm 69, and I think the the particularly relevant one is the second one, if I might suggest, from Psalm 109. Let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Real quick, I'm sorry, you have to turn there. Real quick, turn to Psalm 109. Go, 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 go fast. Psalms are easy to find. They're wonderful to read. Psalm 109. It's a psalm of David. Verse 1. The the relevant part is verse 8, where it says, let another take his office. That's what Peter is quoting. But listen to the build-up to it. Because it's one of those psalms that David had Like many of the Psalms, there was immediate fulfillment and application to David's own life, but then is recorded in that there can be application to any believer's life, and in this case, even had prophetic significance. Do not keep silent, O God, of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They've spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. But I give myself to prayer. Thus, they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man. And here's the really like imprecatory part of this. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Pretty severe. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg and let them seek their uh, bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has, etc., etc., etc. So David's got this in his own life. And David routinely had this in his own life, it seems. But here's the thing that's amazing. I don't have time to break all that down. But listen, in Acts, they knew. They're all together in prayer and they're in one accord. And this comes to their mind. Oh yeah, that verse in Psalm 109, which says, let another take his office. Judas Iscariot fell and we need to replace him. And they knew that to be God's word. Here's the gem. Peter doesn't just say, men and brethren, the Psalms say such and such. He says it like this. Men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. What a great way to describe the Psalms. What a great way to describe, in a greater sense, the entire Bible, right? People who are committed to not believing will often say, well, the Bible was just written by men. 
But look what Peter says here. Yes, indeed, it was written by David, but who is it that was speaking? The Holy Spirit. You can have absolute confidence that though the Bible was written down by men, every word of it was authored by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine and reproof, correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Elsewhere, this very same Peter, when he writes what becomes his contribution to the canon of Scripture, he writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, no time to turn there, but he says, even our beloved brother, the Apostle Paul, writes to us with some things which seem hard to understand, and then talking about false teachers, he says, they twist them like they do the rest of the Scripture. And the little kind of indirect thing that is inferred there is that the Apostle Paul's epistles were on the same authoritative level as Scripture. The Greek word being graphe. Graphe being a word that is always used in the Bible to describe Scripture. Jesus used the word graphe to describe Scripture. Other places in the Bible, it's prominently used to describe Scripture. It's the word that Peter uses to describe it. It's a tremendously powerful statement that ought to make you very confident in your Bible. That, and you already were. I know that's why you're here. But God, but God, listen, God made it very, very clear within the pages of Scripture that every word in the book is from Him. So just like in the previous section, I'm left to ask, why don't we pray? In this section, maybe I'm left to ask, why do we loathe reading and studying our Bibles? Get into it, guys. It's, you, do you know that it's only the last four or five hundred years that, that, that the Western world and, and really the entire world has been able to do what we call reading the Bible? I mean, up to then, it was a very select and rare few that had the capacity to read and to write. And it's really only with the, the beginning of the printing press that, that the Bible could be mass-produced. And then the, uh, in, in, the, in the early 17th century, the King James Version of the Bible is produced, which puts it commonly in the hands of English-speaking people and every other language, just about every other language on the earth as down through the centuries had their moment where the Bible was completed in their language and there are still people working on getting the Bible translated into other groups so that everybody in the world can just read the Bible for themselves and yet there are still people in the world who have never read it. Are you kidding me? You want to go through your life never reading this? You want to go through your life not knowing what Obadiah and Habakkuk and Zephaniah and all these people have said? When it has direct bearing upon your existence? Every person in the world must read this because it bears down with authority on their lives whether they care or not. Don't be ignorant. Don't be proud. Don't be lazy. Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. Not just David wrote it. The Holy Spirit spoke through him. That's your Bible. That be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's his food.
to fill you up with. Here's his food. Here's your diet to get filled up on if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just start. You've always had trouble reading. Don't worry about it. God will bring you through it. Just make the commitment. Open up to page one and just start. He'll take you through it. Come to church. Listen to the studies that we do. It'll fill you up. Akel Dama, the field of blood. That's what the, the money that Judas betrayed Jesus for was used to buy. And you see how the story goes on. There's implications about apostleship and things like that that I can make that I won't for time's sake, but they pray, they pray. Of course they pray. That's what the previous passage says they were doing the whole time. They're praying. So naturally they pray. Lord, which one? God, which one of these two? They wouldn't just pick one themselves. No, here we have two. Lord, you show us which one. And then they cast lots. Before you start casting lots to make your decisions, please remember these people spent days praying. If they didn't cast lots, God would have figured out some other way to answer them. It's not the casting lots that's important. It's that they prayed that's important. And the lot falls to Matthias, and Matthias takes Judas Iscariot's place. The epilogue of Easter is that Christ rose from the dead, made the promise of the Holy Spirit, told them that the kingdom being established wasn't even their concern. Their mission was to be witnesses when the Holy Spirit came. Ascended back to heaven from the very spot that he's going to return to with angels announcing his return coming someday that we're 2,000 years closer to. They immediately went back to Jerusalem and buried themselves in days of prayer together and were even moved by the Spirit to replace Judas Iscariot with Matthias in preparation for what came in chapter 2, which was the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of an age that continues right now. If you're not in Christ, you need to be in Christ. This building of this kingdom is happening right now and you need to be in it. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And you need to receive him by believing in him. There's no religious exercise. It's, no, it's not a sacrament. It's not a religious ceremony. You just come to Christ in faith. Humbly acknowledge your sins and turn to Christ and receive him. Believe him and receive him. And he will come into you. And he will make his home in you. And he will adopt you as his own child, and you will become an heir of this kingdom that he's building, a joint heir with Jesus himself. All your sins will be forgiven, and you will have the irrevocable promise of everlasting life in his name. There's no other way. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and have your part in this. No time for the last hymn, sorry. Let's all stand up together.